Welcome to The Bridgehead with Jonathan Van Maren, bringing you cutting-edge news, commentary, and interviews from the front lines of the culture wars. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead on AM 530 at 1.30 p.m. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and I'll be your host for the next half an hour. Now, of all the authors and ideas that I've discussed on this show, especially over the last couple of months, uh, I know I've quoted one man more than most, and that man's name is Mark Stein. He's by far my favorite uh, commenter on culture in North America. Uh, He writes across the English-speaking world. He's published in Great Britain, he's published in Australia, he's published here in Canada, and he's published in the United States. And he's got a real knack uh, for taking really small stories and using them as a microcosm to describe broader cultural issues that we're facing. And there's no issue that he doesn't touch. His first major book, I would say, was America Alone, The End of the World as We Know It. I actually interviewed him some time ago uh, when he was on the speaking tour for that particular book. And that book was, of course, on on the rise of Islam. And, and Mark Stein took a look at uh, demographics and, and the cold, hard numbers behind why Western civilization was declining. And one of those reasons, uh, as he put forward in that book, uh, was simply that Westerners were having far less children than, than Muslims were. And that, you know, in many European countries, we were facing uh, what he referred to as the upside-down family tree. Four grandparents, two parents, one child. And in this book, which caused quite a splash at many different places. It was reviewed by the likes of the late Christopher Hitchens. Uh, You know, British author Martin Amos, who did not fare well under the uh, pen of Mark Stein in that book, said that uh, Mark Stein's writing was compelling, even though he wrote like a maniac. Uh, But this book really launched a conversation uh, on many different levels on issues of demography and the future of Western civilization. And it brought to light another struggle, the struggle for free speech, as both Mark Stein and Canada's very own Ezra Levant were brought before various human rights commissions being accused of uh, of Islamophobia. So this book on the death of Western civilization, you know, spawned another discussion on where Western civilization is going as uh, Western civilization seemed very eager to suppress free speech in order to appease its, its future conquerors, if Mark Stein is to be believed. Uh, the book that he wrote after that focused on, you know, the economic collapse of what is arguably the greatest economy in world history, and that's the United States of America. And that book was After America, Get Ready for Armageddon. That book was it was really quite a chilling read because, you know, especially, you know, right here in Canada, it struck a lot closer to home when Mark Stein talks about the implosion of an economy uh, that's right next door and on whose trade we very much depend when he talks about, you know, the collapse of the dollar. And he was on, on Glenn Beck just the other day saying that, you know, when the dollar collapses, you won't be able to maintain your lifestyle even if you shop at Walmart. Uh, that was quite a bit more of a nerve-wracking book. And, and when his book came out uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and I'd like to encourage each and every one of you to go out and buy it. If you're here in Canada, uh, it's at Chapters. That's where I picked it up. I picked it up on my way to Ottawa. It's called The Undocumented Mark Stein, Don't Say You Weren't Warned. Uh, it's a collection of, of his best columns, and the columns sort of relate to uh, all the different issues across the board. He addresses freedom of speech. He addresses 
uh, Islam. He addresses immigration. Uh, he addresses the culture of death, issues like abortion, of death with dignity, uh, you know, the, the abolition of man, as he puts it. Uh, he addresses all these different issues, and, and he takes these, these small stories and uses them as microcosms to illustrate these really broad trends that many people don't notice. And it was kind of interesting. I was driving up to Ottawa with one of my colleagues, and we were going to go to question period. And when we were in question period, uh, we listened to Prime Minister Stephen Harper debating Justin Trudeau and Thomas Mulcair on the recent terrorist attack in Canada, in Ottawa, where, you know, we as Canadians sat shocked as we heard gunshots ringing out in the halls of our parliament buildings. Uh, you know, just absolutely shocking news footage. And it was interesting because Thomas Mulcair stood up as, as we watched and said, you know what, there's a difference between a mentally deranged individual and a terrorist attack, as if, you know, Islamic terrorism, as Islamic radicalism wasn't some sort of form of mental derangement. But as I sat there, I had just been reading Stein's book on the way up to Ottawa, and I thought, there it is. There's, there's this sort of Western detachment from reality, a man takes up the call of ISIS to shoot Canadians, guns down an unarmed soldier who's, who's standing in front of our war memorial, who's standing in front of, uh, of the tomb of the unknown soldier, you know, races into our parliament buildings to open fire on our elected officials. And one of our, the leaders of our parties, you know, the leader of, of the official opposition, the New Democrat Party, is going to say that this isn't terrorism. It was just an interesting example of this detachment. And then we walked at a question period. Uh, we walked past the parliamentary library and, and I could still see the bullet hole sunk into the doorframe where the terrorist got shot. And it was just sort of a really interesting contrast to read Mark Stein's comments on, on how the West is ignoring all the threats, both internal and external. And yet, we go on as if nothing has happened. The culture of death, the impending collapse of the economy, the rise of the bloated welfare state, uh, the rise of, uh, of Islam, both at home and abroad. We're ignoring all of these things. And Mark Stein, unfortunately, is turning out to be in many ways a prophet. And I really want to encourage everyone to go out and buy this book. Because I, I think Mark Stein really succinctly sums up many of, of, of the challenges that we face. So I got a hold of him. And, and we, we had a bit of a conversation, and I'd like to air uh, some of this conversation that I had with Mark Stein with you. We, we don't have as much time on today's show, so I'll just be uh, you know airing part of the interview, and we're hoping to air more of it later. Again, the title of the book is The Undocumented Mark Stein, Don't Say You Weren't Warned. It's about 30 bucks worth every single dollar. Uh, you know, I purchased it at a chapters. Every chapter is a stocking it, as far as I know, and I'd like to encourage you to go out and buy it. So... Uh, here's Mark Stein talking about how culture affects politics and how conservatives have to get down to the hard work of rebuilding culture if we're going to win uh, this battle against the internal and external forces uh, that we face. So here's Mark Stein telling me about how we here in Canada need to start defending the family. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Stein. If in the next speech from the front, somebody put in a line of that, we're going to re reverse the decline of the family and do this, do that. Uh, people would think the uh, government had gone nuts. But you have to do it, because without it, there's nothing but the state and the citizen and nothing in between. 
It's kind of an interesting way to look at it because I, I spoke with Phyllis Schlafly, who I'm sure you're familiar with, quite recently, and she said that while we seem to be losing on many fronts and the sexual revolution and the ideologies thereof seem to have accomplished uh, an enormous amount of ground on, on every imaginable level, the one area we do seem to be winning on is abortion. Uh, the polls seem to be swinging consistently our way in this, and, and Phyllis Schlafly's explanation for that is that pro-lifers have been very much focused on winning the culture and not just winning on politics. I think that's right, but I think that's, just, that's because it was essentially taken out of politics in, in American life. It's different uh, in Canada, it's different in Britain, it's different in Europe, um, where essentially the power remains with legislators. Um, if the government of Sweden wanted to change the law on abortion, it could do so relatively easily. In America, ever since Roe v. Wade, it's basically been mortgaged to judges. It's a question about finding, getting to five on the, on the Supreme Court uh, to overturn that. And so in a sense, the politicians are irrelevant to that. It's the, the abortion is, is an irrelevant matter in terms of who gets elected to this or that, except for the Democrats. Democrats use it to demagogue, uh, pro-life opponents. But Phyllis Schlafly is right to that degree that Technology, I think, as much as anything else, has enabled mothers to be to live uh, with their with their babies from a far earlier stage. You get to see this little thing growing inside you, and you know it's human. And the left tells us that it isn't human to the point where, in America, shamefully, shamefully, uh, there are infanticide mills funded by taxpayers uh, via Planned Parenthood where uh, these, these babies are uh, nine-month-old babies uh, are delivered except for the skull. And then just before the skull comes out, and it's obvious that it's a living human being, these so-called, quote, doctors, unquote, kill the thing. Fantasize mills, and it's a mark of great shame to America that it has that. And that is to be said against Phyllis Schlafly's optimism, because at the same time as the polls show uh, increasing public uh, movement away from abortion, the reality on the ground is that more and more uh, fully grown babies are being slaughtered each year. And in fact, one of my concerns in the book is that a general culture of death can take hold. The whole, at the other end of the spectrum, the whole so-called death with dignity thing that's going on in uh, Switzerland, where, where you have death tourism. People buy one-way flights to Switzerland for a glorious two-week vacation, followed by the ultimate express checkout. Um, you, in the Netherlands, they're thinking of building purpose-built hospitals for death. Um, in Japan, I think one of the strongest pieces in the book is this weird thing about the number of uh, young Japanese people who have never, and well, actually when I say young, I mean people up to early middle age who have never dated, who have never had an intimate human relationship. Right. In some ways, the, the, the Western world is atomizing. Um, and it's not just about, you know, functioning families, but it's also about uh, a sort of uh, move towards self-contained human beings uh, existing on a few electronic stimuli from their new toys, but actually incapable of forming human relationships. And that matches up with, with the Gian Comeschi story, if you'll indulge me for just a moment. You, you mentioned that, you know, what's shocking about this story is that he, he's the, this generation's new beta male, where he's not just, you know, one of the pedophiles from the BBC, but rather he's the kind of guy who, who, who tweets out sensitivity, but, you know, punches a girl's lights out. 
and, and, and we see sort of all, all the things that used to be good, you know, family, children, um, you know, sex, you know, used to be making love, and, and, and now it's this guy committing serial violence. And, and do you think that a lot of things now are sort of coming to the end of the road, you know? Activism is no longer, you know, hippies screaming at soldiers, but people taking selfies on toilets, you know? We can't even, I think it was G.K. Chesterton put it, you know, even, even our sins have become sort of boring jokes. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I, I have a profile in the book of Pete Seeger, uh, the, the the tedious old hippie um, who gave us where have all the flowers gone and the anti-war anthems and all this. And someone who's been on the wrong side of history uh, ever since before the Second World War, when he was opposed to uh, FDR and, and Churchill and all the rest of it, he was unreconstructed Stalinist until a couple of years ago. Eventually keeled over in his 90s, but in his final sort of public appearances, he went down to the Occupy Wall Street protest and sang uh, some songs to these guys. Now, these were people who, again, uh, they're, they're, they're supposed anarchists, but they're actually anarchists calling for the government uh, to publicly fund their pointless uh, six-year college courses in transgender and colonialism studies. And... Uh, so they're anarchists asking for more government handouts, which is a, a strangely... An irony, yes. And, and he, he sang all his, you know, I think I've got some cheap gag in there that he given their general malodorous when he sang, where have all the flowers gone? He should have sang, where have all the showers gone? And he didn't do that, <laughs> as I know. But even Pete Seeger in his dotage, even at 93, 94, whatever he was, must have thought, my God, this is what it's come uh, down to. I, you know, in the 1930s, I was uh, I was an unreconstructed Stalinist. I was a communist. I opposed the Vietnam War. Uh, these people are defecating on police cars and uh, and calling for more government funding on their pointless college courses. So that instead of six years to do a bachelor's, a worthless bachelor's degree, they can take 15 years to do a worthless bachelor's degree. And there is that sense, I think, of the whole sort of circling round the drain that this particular model. Is, uh, is just sort of chasing its tail down and down and down uh, around the uh, S-bend of uh, the civilizational toilet. One final question. When I spoke with you last, you said that no one writes an apocalyptic tome thinking things might not change. And you said that when you wrote, uh, you know, The End of the World as We Know It. You said that when you wrote Get Ready for Armageddon uh, with this book. It seems to be a collection of, of, of some of your funniest work, but also some of your, uh, you know, most doomsday predictions. Do you still have the same optimism of the happy warrior you had in your two previous books, or is, is this one more, let's laugh while we can, but record gestures at the fall of Rome? Well, I don't want it to be like that. Can I end with what I think is a profile of someone who had as tough a task as anyone who did, uh, William Wilberforce, not really for the obvious thing, which is slavery. Most people know he got slavery abolished uh, throughout the British Empire, uh, but more to do with the fact uh, that he generally cleaned up London. He, he basically uh, he basically sparked what he what he called a reformation of manners. Um, we're historically ignorant, so when everyone when all these people now calling uh, transgender bathrooms and uh, consensual punching the lights out of obliging women and all the rest of it. Um, Tend to still contrast it with the sort of uptight Victorian prudery. That's our reference point. You 
don't want to go back to that, do you? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you wake up tomorrow and you want to be a, a woman, you can be a woman. If you wake up tomorrow and decide that what uh, is a healthy expression of your sexuality uh, is to find some CBC intern and uh, break her jaw, you can do that. That's a healthy experiment. We don't want to be uptight Victorian prudes. There weren't any uptight Victorian prudes in pre-Victorian London. It was a debauched scene, and Wilberforce entirely uh, reversed that to the point that we now think uh, that nobody had any, uh, nobody enjoyed any kind of different sex until 1963, uh, as, uh, as Philip Larkin wrote. And that's the difference that one man that one man can make. And I am, to that extent. I still think all things are possible. But after what happened in Ottawa uh, a couple of weeks ago when poor Corporal Cirillo was shot at point blank range, a lot of a lot of people thought I ought to have been gloating because the things that I got dragged uh, through the human rights process for, mm-hmm. I wrote in America alone that there was an issue with young men, including young uh, Muslim converts. I wrote about a guy uh, who was a white supremacist and in an English jail converted to Islam because he decided that what he liked more was not so much the white part but the supremacist. And they said, well, you, you, you warned of this stuff and now it's come true, so you must be feeling pretty satisfied. Of course I'm not satisfied. Of course I'm not satisfied. I'm, I'm, a, a brave, decent, honorable young man who wanted to serve queen and country is dead because some uh, because some other young man infected by a, uh, an appalling ideological virus decided to put a bullet in it. I'd much rather instead of instead of me being able to swank around Parliament saying I told you guys this would happen, I would I would much rather uh, in 2006 people had uh, and in 2001 on September the 12th 2001. People had addressed honestly the civilizational challenge we face, but they didn't, and they didn't when my book came out, and they're still not doing it now. And it's absolutely—I can assure you—I, when I looked at those photographs of Corporal Cirillo posing with a California tourist on the weekend before he was shot dead, the last weekend of his life, and the poor guy didn't know that. When I saw the photos of his dogs waiting for him to come home, I, when I, when I saw the uh, photograph of his little boy and those uh, Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders in the kilt uh, carrying his coffin. The idea that it gives you any satisfaction to be right about that right. is, is appalling. I would much rather have been proved totally wrong. And all the, all the great pansified eunuch men, the Gian Gameshi types, without, I hope, the same pathologists, who say who think that uh, Islam is just part of the great diversity quilt and there's nothing to worry about, I wish those guys had been right. And my books looked ridiculous uh, eight years after the fact. But it's not, it, that's not the case. And it, it affords me no satisfaction that people are still not dealing with this honestly and addressing what's going on on us. Well, hopefully your book is one big step towards people addressing things more honestly. I hope so, John. <laughs> but uh, this, is, this, is a, this is a long struggle. And, uh, we're, we're, we're playing for the long game. Well, we are, and we're glad to have you here, Mr. Stein. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks a lot, John. All right, have a wonderful day. Ladies and gentlemen, you were listening to a commentator and author Mark Stein on his new book, The Undocumented Mark Stein, Don't Say You Weren't Warned, available at bookstores everywhere. And 
I kind of want to end with what he ended with because he used an example I often use when I'm talking about culture. When people say, you know, all these things are so entrenched in our culture, abortion and euthanasia seems to be coming down the pipe and what can we do to change culture? And I like to point uh, towards William Wilberforce as well and for precisely the same reasons that Mark Stein does in his book on page uh, 397 if memory serves. And what he does is he points out that the culture William Wilberforce was facing was not just a culture that endorsed the slave trade and supported the slave trade. It was a culture where brothels, you know, that specialized in adolescent girls were opened near the parliament buildings in downtown London and served the politicians. We're talking about an extraordinarily debauched culture that in almost every way uh, was totally depraved and totally broken down. And people look at Wilberforce as the man who ended the slave trade, and of course he was that. But he also started over 70 other organizations. He confronted everything from the use of alcohol in the inner cities to, to strengthening education and literacy, to uh, starting the first SPCA, uh, to fighting the slave trade. He launched a full-scale reformation of manners. He attacked decadent culture wherever he found it and inspired people to do the same. So I'm hoping that after you know listening to this interview and, and listening to these commentaries and reading Mark Stein's book, we can all get down to the hard work of reforming our culture and embarking in our own 21st century reformation of manners. Thanks so much for tuning in again this week. We hope you'll tune in again next week at 1.30 p.m. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend.